Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. I'm here today with Joe Brusuelis, Chief Economist for RSM. The firm recently released its latest Real Economy report, so Joe is with me today to talk about some of the insights from that, along with other economic factors impacting the middle market. Joe, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. So let's start by discussing the recent U.S. midterm elections. What are the big takeaways for middle market businesses and investors? So I think the major takeaway is is that if you're expecting the temporary tax provisions to be made permanent, it might be a good idea to adjust those expectations. That's just simply not going to happen. Hmm. You know, late next year, there's going to be roughly a combination of temporary tax measures and fiscal spending that are going to drop out of the tax and, and spending uh, measures. Hmm. It's roughly equivalent to $126 billion. So let's put that in context. During the third quarter of 2018, the U.S. Uh, economy advanced by 3.5%, which is equal to roughly just under $160 billion. So that's a non-trivial sum that's going to fall off the overall economy, and it's going to cause growth to slow um, probably a little bit more significantly than what some market uh, analysts and economic forecasters are expecting. We're at 2.4% for next year on our growth forecast, but we're openly admitting due to tariffs and probable upside surprises on inflation, you're gonna see that growth path slow. So if you have exposure in your middle market firm, especially into defense spending, overall uh, government services, you should begin to plan for that now. That will be the most meaningful consequence of the most recent midterm election. And I also wanna point out that starting March 1st, U.S. gonna have to lift its debt ceiling. The last number of times it's had to do that, we've had basic government shutdowns. Because of the polarization in the country, especially in Washington, D.C., I think it's a pretty good chance that sometime around mid-year, because they can push this all the way to June through what's called quote-unquote extraordinary measures, yeah, we may see a government shutdown. The last extended government shutdown was 2011, and that government shutdown did cause the S&P 500 to sell off by about 20%. So that these, these things that we used to think really weren't all that important, they carry pretty big consequences these days. Hmm. And do you expect the elections to have any impact on trade policy? No, I don't actually. Um, NAFTA, or the, the uh, passage of the new NAFTA agreement, is surprisingly not on the legislative calendar for the lame duck session. That means it's going to roll over into the new Congress. The Democrats will want to have their imprint on it, but I think we'll, we'll get it passed now. Who knows what Mr. Trump will do? Because nobody knows, including Mr. Trump, knows what he's going to do on any given day. Now, with respect to the trade uh, spat between the U.S. and China, we're telling clients to prepare for a full 25% import tax, that's tariff, on all $517 billion worth of Chinese goods by mid-year. It's important to note for mid-sized companies that have exposure to these supply chains, that the tariff is going to reset upward from 10% now to 25% on January 1st. That's on $250 billion. And due to our interaction with the Trump administration, and they've been actually very transparent, open and honest about this, that we expect to see the full boat, an additional $267 billion, with a full 25% tariff on that. So that's what's coming up. Uh, How are middle market businesses faring now amid trade tensions between the U.S. and China? the, The trade spat unfortunately, 
was interpreted early on as just a clever negotiating tactic. Mm-hmm. It's clearly that's not what, what was happening, that the, the tariffs in themselves were the end. Um, so middle market companies right now are reacting on the fly. They're beginning to think about map, remapping their own supply chains. Mm-hmm. Where are the alternatives at? In some cases, it's very difficult to find alternatives. I mean, you've got to think about shoring up your, your liquidity. You've got to be thinking about FX hedging if you really have exposure to certain markets. We have a, a whole seven-point plan on how to approach this at this point. And we are beginning to talk more aggressively, especially with the U.S. middle market um, participants, who are a little bit behind the curve compared to their Mexican or Canadian counterparts. Can you give an example of a mid-sized company that you know has been affected by the tariffs? All right. So we haven't quite captured with systematic data, time series data, so I can give real vivid examples on the damage caused by the trade spat and the tariffs. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll probably come first end of first quarter, early second quarter next year. But we have vivid anecdotes, vivid narratives. And the best narrative is uh, Bigelow Tea. Hmm. It's the primary alternative tea to Lipton. It's uh, Catherine Bigelow runs it. She has uh, foreign clients. She treats them like family. Those are her shareholders. And she's run into a very difficult decision just during the first phase of the tariff spat. Essentially that she imports specialty aluminum and tea, which are the core concepts and, and products that allow her to have her good. So when we, we started to talk with Catherine, what we found out was that there was no alternative for the specialty aluminum. There just simply wasn't. Hmm. Not in Southwest Asia and not in North America. Wow. And when it came to the tea, the tea of such high quality that her firm faced a really unique decision, right? Which was, do we compromise on the quality of both the, our, the way in which we deliver the product and the internals of the product itself? And the answer at the end of the day was no. The result, two price increases. Wow. Right? And they'll be at a point soon, I'm sure, where it's like thinner margins. Sure. Right? What's beyond that, not for necessarily for her company, but companies that find themselves in the situation, you're talking reduction in hours and then reduction in force. Hmm. You know, there's a reason why we haven't had trade wars for well over 70 years, is that we learned our lesson that trade wars are the ultimate wars of choice and they're classic lose-lose propositions. And we're beginning to see that tightening financial conditions around the world, including the U.S. and China, classic lose-lose, and then the, cl- the classic collateral damage the turning over of industrial production in Germany, which is just probably a couple weeks or a month or two away from moving into contractionary territory. Hmm. So we are reaching a potential inflection point on the trade spat. Now, notice I'm using my words very carefully here, that we're not at a trade war. Trade war is clickbait, that we're just in the early stages of a trade spat. Okay. How do you know when you're in a trade war? It's when you begin to see the use of financial weapons. Beggar thy neighbor currency depreciations in excess of 25, 20 to 25%. Mm-hmm. Unusual changes in the composition of purchases of government securities cross-border. Okay. Capital controls, um, seizure of foreign assets. Um, these are the things you saw during the Great Depression, which is why it's been so long since we've used that. And we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. has 10% sanctions on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods. Yeah, the Chinese have allowed 11% depreciation of their currency. 
which completely negates the, the point. Mm -hmm. The risk is, is this continues, right? And we go to 25% and then the Chinese really began to depreciate. We're into some terrain that we don't understand how this is going to work. I already am concerned because I can begin to see some data move to tariff spat. Um, will cause upside risk to inflation, specifically in U.S. Consumer Price Index, mm. next year. Okay. You're going to see some pretty big sticker shock on, on the auto sector. If you got to buy a, fresh, a new car, you probably ought to go do it soon. Yeah. Some holiday shopping. A little holiday, that's right. <laughs> I'm sure they're going to be zero inv invoice pricing out of uh, the big three. They're going to need to clear that inventory. Uh, um, but we're still early in this process. Um, I'm hopeful that the two sides can come to a point, or at least declare a truce, mm -hmm. if not just call it a day. But these are things middle market leaders have to be worried about. And another threat to middle market businesses that you've written about in the latest edition of The Real Economy is labor shortages. What impact is the tight labor market having, and, and how are you seeing businesses cope? All right, so 2019 is going to be the year where we start to see bottlenecks in production due to lack of labor. If you take a look at the U.S. labor market, Unemployment rates at 3.7%. We've essentially added 200,000 jobs a month since 2012. So these are some long-term trends that we now really feel comfortable talking about. You know, when you look at it, there's less than one person available who's willing and able to work and looking for work than there is for each job opening. I think, what are we, about 1.2 million people short of meeting all the job openings? Mm -hmm. So this is a historically tight labor market. What we're talking with the clients about is the relative ratio of technology to labor. If you can't find qualified individuals to meet whether they're entry-level, semi-skilled, or skilled positions, you're going to have to think about the substitution of technology. Hmm. You know, we've talked about this before. The middle market's a good bit behind the curve when it comes to investments in capital expenditures as software equipment and intellectual property because the unleashing dynamics they're now at play due to the advanced integration of technology into the provision of goods and delivery of services. The middle market's in a very different position. While conditions are robust, confidence is extraordinarily high, we can see some of the challenges and that challenge feeds back into that tight labor market. Look, let's be honest and open about this. Previous business cycles, one Sunday night, the president just signs a, a decree. It lifts the immigration caps. These things take care of themselves six to 12 months. That's just not going to happen here. So what's going to probably occur is what we're seeing, especially in food and beverage and leisure and hospitality, pull forward the time of robotics and automation. Hmm. You know, I travel 150 to 200 nights a year on business. I spend a lot of time in hotels. I'm actually seeing the automation really creep into how you check in, your digital room key. I mean, some of uh, the hotel chain, the one hotel chain that I use in particular, I don't have to interact with a human being huh. at all, right? At all. The only time I, I do is if I have an extra bag, if I've got a longer trip, and now I'm beginning to see robots show up and take my bags. Mm. So things are definitely moving along at a quicker pace. Then I think your average middle market uh, business owner probably understands. It's, it's really important that the middle market um, business owner recognize that <clears throat> the first of the artificial intelligence devices are now on the market, that you can integrate them into how you run your business, 
right? When I'm out speaking, I like to provide you know accessible bits of information on quite complex topics. So I always like to break it down the individual and also use myself as a little bit of an example and sometimes for a little levity. And so I'm a big fan of Amazon Alexa. Mm. I became an early adapter. And, uh, the AI device runs the entire energy management of my two-bedroom apartment in New York City. Mm. I mean, everything. Um, it saved me 30% on average. Wow. Yeah, it's a much more efficient device than I am. Right? I'll leave the lights on. I'll turn the air conditioning up way too much in the summer, turn the heat up way too much in the winter. Uh, she doesn't do that. It's actually perfect. Hmm. Yeah, and I think I've optimized that. And as an economist, I like experiments. That's a pretty darn good experiment. Right. Right? So if you're a business owner, how can these first set of consumer-driven devices help you manage your energy management in your productive facility or your distribution warehouse? Hmm. Where can you openly substitute technology for, say, administrative assistance? Right? There's so many different conversations that we could have with your average middle market business owner. It boggles the mind. Yet, we're, we're somewhat concerned that we've fallen behind the curve. And I think as a labor market, it's very tight. We're at 3.7%. We'll be at 3.5% at the end of next year. And we're probably going to cross 3% 2020. Mm -hmm. At that point, we have a critical labor shortage. And we're just not going to bring in the extra help. So we've got to figure it out. And in addition to technology, you've written that prison reform might be an area that we see cooperation yeah. among Democrats and Republicans. Could that help mitigate some of the You know, it, it could. I think that's one of the things that's likely to happen, a point of uh, cooperation. During the midterm election in Florida, there was a referendum on um, letting criminals begin to work again, mm -hmm. right? So 1.5 million people are going to come back in the workforce. They're between 25 and 54. That's prime age workers. This is the sort of forward-looking uh, reform that's necessary amidst the most tightest labor market that anybody can remember. Mm -hmm. um, if we saw that wholesale, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that it happens. Sure. And that's encouraging with respect to avoiding uh, wider uh, labor market bottlenecks. And, of course, if this goes on long enough, you will see wages really take off and we'll have a little bit of wage push inflation. And on that topic, what are you seeing in terms of wages right now? So, market? okay. On a year-ago basis, average hourly earnings are up 3.1%. That's in line with the employment cost index that uh, policymakers at the central bank prefer to use in terms of tracking wages. Mm -hmm. Now, well, it's always good to look at the year-over-year -year data. You know, as an economist, you want to have an idea of, well, what's the real trend, Right. So because it's a very noisy series, I like to smooth it out and create what's called a three-month average annualized pace. That's actually at 3.6%. Hmm. The underlying trend is a little bit quicker than the top-line data would tell you. So if you're a middle market manager out there, you're a CEO or a CFO, you should plan for 4% increase in wages over the next six months. We're going to hit that quite quickly. Why is that important? The last time we saw this, a 4% increase in wages, was prior to the housing crisis, mm -hmm. right around that 2002 to 2005 period. And then in the cyclical expansion before that, that would have been the Clinton era dot com, uh, wages were, the peak was 4.7%. Mm -hmm. Well, wages have been sluggish. There are problems with uh, income inequality. Uh, the way in which the economy fundamentally fractured in 2007 
and when it healed, it was very different. There's big differences in wage growth around the economy, largely revolving around, are you in the new economy? Financial services, medical, tech, life sciences, or are you in the traditional economy? Agriculture, smokestack manufacturing, um, mineral extraction, right? You got big, big differences. But we are starting to see something good. People are feeling much better about their own financial conditions, in part due to the long period of job gains and then the, the increase in wages and of course the, the tax cut on the margin for households has helped. Um, has it turned into a risk yet? Not really. Um, we're still only starting to see some mild margin compression. I don't see any wage push or wage pull inflation out there. Um, so it's good times and we should enjoy them. You know, 2019, or excuse me, 2018, our forecast was for 3.1% growth. We're right on, on that track right mm. now. Um, I think we'll have another good year, slightly more modest growth. But again, wages will be up above 4% by the end of next year. And what can we expect from the Fed in 2019? All right, so this is where things are going to get interesting. So in December 2018, you're going to get another 25 basis point hike on the policy rate. The Fed's summary of economic projections, that's their forecast, implies three 25 basis point hikes next year. But the way in which the forecast is, is constructed and reported through what's called the dot plots, they're very, very extremely close to implying four rate hikes, hmm. which is in fact our forecast for 2019. Okay. So if you're listening to this before mid-December 2018, you should expect another 125 basis points is going to be thrown on the federal funds rate. That implies a median of about 3.5 at the end of next year. Okay, a couple things. Under normal circumstances, that would imply a 5% 10-year and a 6% mortgage rate. And because of the global turmoil, emerging markets, the problems in Italy, the trade spat between the U.S. and China, all sorts of things going on in the Middle East and Africa, and of course the human tragedy down in Venezuela, there's a safe haven move into U.S. paper. When you look at how yields are constructed across the maturity spectrum, you need to decompose that into the neutral yield plus or minus the risk premium. It's probably hard to believe for most middle market CFOs, but the risk premium on the U.S. 10-year has a negative in front of it. Huh. Now, should all these global problems ease, that risk premium could turn to positive. But for now, it's suppressing rates at the long end. We're only at about 3.2, while the front end, the federal funds rate, is at 2 to 2.5. So unless something changes on a global basis, we're going to come close to having an inverted yield curve next year. Hmm. Yield curve is likely to flatten significantly. When a yield curve begins to invert, that's typically signaling to forward-looking participants that a recession's on the way. Interesting. Yeah, now, I, I know this sounds rather inside baseball or, you know, this guy's just a gearhead. We can show this to you. I can break it down and give you data visualization so you understand the relationship. And the maths always sum up correctly. So we think at more than any other time since we've entered into expansion, roughly since, you know, 2010 to 2012, that middle market participants absolutely have to pay attention to monetary policy out of the Federal Reserve, the path of that monetary policy, and where the policy rate is, and along the entire maturity spectrum. Hmm. 
Hmm. Here's why. Middle market's been responsible for 70%, or small and medium enterprises have been responsible for 70% of all the job growth, an overwhelming majority of, of overall growth. Hmm. Middle market firms, small firms, are not like the Fortune 1000. They just can't boogie on down to Bank of America and say, hey, we need a little increase in our line of liquidity, right? right. That's not how it works, especially when it, we're talking about a time of tariffs, mm-hmm. right? In any environment, it's always difficult to find capital if you're a middle market firm. You know, with high, high yield instruments looking a little shaky, with the policy rate likely to increase by 125 basis points over the next you know, 15 months, I get real concerned that once we get to the middle of next year, that while the Fed will say, well, our policy's neutral, yeah, it's neutral for the Fortune 1000, hmm. but it's actually restrictive for small and medium sized enterprises. Interesting. So at, at no more time has rate policy been of paramount interest to the middle market than it is now. And while we think things are going to be very good data-wise this year and pretty darn good next year, uh, your smart CEOs are looking out 12 to 18 to 24 months so they can start making decisions. You know, yeah, things are good. Do we want to overdo it? Probably not. Let's get lean and mean so we can be um, productive and opportunistic during the downturn whenever it comes, hmm. right? Because the big, the big mistake most companies make is, is they get too fat during the, the big times and then they cut to the bone sure. during the lean times. And then it takes years to recover from that. So even though we're at the, the second peak of this expansion, it's a good time to begin talking about, hey, what's the risk outlook? What's the matrix look like? And how should we think about preparing hmm. for that eventuality of the, the business curve ending? Because they all do end. Rather than having to panic once it comes. That's right. Yeah, we, we, we want to avoid that. Mm-hmm. That leads to bad decisions. And again, they take years to recover from. Hmm. Well, switching gears a little bit, we have spoken on past episodes of the podcast about what you're currently reading. So I wanted to check in and see if there's anything you've been digging into recently that uh, you think listeners should know about. So the, the book I've really been enjoying is one by A.J. Agarwal called Prediction Machines, The Artificial Intelligence of Economics. And this gives you really good insight into the pace of technological integration into everything in the economy, but especially into uh, service sector firms. Hmm. It gives you a sense of how, if you make data the center of what you do, you're going to increase your productivity, you're going to increase your efficiency, and you're going to increase your growth. But the trade-off is... It's a little like that scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Yoda tells Luke Skywalker to put on the mask and trust the Force and, you know, and to fight evil. Well, some middle market managers are going to go forward and they're going to learn like, wow, I'm going to have to rely on the data, actually identifying the path in which my decisions have to move, and then later actually making the decision Hmm. you know we're moving to a world very quickly where roughly 80 percent of what we do can be done by machines and while they will be making decisions humans are going to reserve probably about 20 percent of the decision to their own judgment 
because the machines are not perfect and they will make mistakes. Sure. Um, we can already see out in the economy what's happening. The business model of all service firms is undergoing a dynamic revolution. That's a different subject for a different day. But essentially, large, medium, and small enterprises are now moving towards data-centric points of organization. One of the best examples was I noticed just before Labor Day, J.P. Morgan put out a press release saying that, uh, yeah, we're not going to charge for our trades anymore, or at least the first 100 trades, excuse me. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting because I've been doing all of this reading, and it makes perfect sense. They don't care about the commission or the fee on the trade. Think about that. You know, 150 years of Wall Street just going right down the train. Yeah. Right? Because they want the information. Uh -huh. Information is gold. If you're, if you're a middle market firm and you're sitting on data, whether it's structured or unstructured, you're sitting on the new oil. Now, to the extent that these firms can get their heads wrapped around how to use it, that's the first question. The second, do they have the intestinal fortitude to begin turning mm. over decision-making process to the data? Sure. That's another, right? And then third, you know, and this is always the toughest part, do you have the capital allocation necessary to dedicated innovation? Because we know middle market firms don't do R&D. Some of the large ones that are public, that can you know, tap private equity, uh, private equity markets or public markets, they can do some research and development, but you know, 99% of middle market firms are gonna be second wave innovators, mm -hmm. right? Which means they're adapting and they're innovating, they're not developing, two different things. So these are some of just a few of the challenges out there for middle market firms. So to give you a good example of something like this, uh, we have our own middle market podcast that we do, and we had Danny Meyer on um, from Union Square, mm -hmm. which owns Shed Shack, yep. uh, amongst other number of restaurants. Manhattan, New York right now, it's six-month wait, I think, to get on the, 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 the guest list. When we were doing the podcast, I asked Danny, he said, tell me about data. Tell me about how it's changed your company. You know, he stopped, and he had sort of a really interesting pregnant pause. And then he said, it's absolutely changed what I do. I thought I understood my customers before we started to organize our data. Turns out I didn't. I had very different customers than what we thought. And at that point, Danny had a very mature, very sophisticated organization. Um, and he absolutely credits it to expanding the frontiers of his business. Wow. Both the older franchises and the newer ones. So that just gives you a sense of the, the power of predictive analytics and why we all want to A, read prediction machines, and B, we want to understand the implication of it. Mm -hmm. But I would urge everybody to pick up that book. It's really fascinating, accessible introduction into some of the other things with respect to technology that are going to be somewhat dynamic, even revolutionary at times. So tell Alexa to order that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, thanks for joining me on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.